the most critical bit of information from the Eightfold Path in the West is probably right effort. A lot of the Buddha's teachings have been brought to the West, especially mindfulness. However, right effort, I feel, has been slightly miscommunicated. And it's a critical element. So I will be talking about right effort in two or three or four videos of exploring all the details. But to begin with, I would just like to summarize and give you the headings and a few indications of why it's important to understand what right effort is. Right effort is the sixth factor of the Eightfold Path. And it is the beginning. It's tied in with a few factors that follow it. It's tied in with right mindfulness and right samadhi or right concentration. These three are really inseparable and they are the launching pad for true awakening, true insight and wisdom. If these are not properly assembled and do not have a right relationship with each other, progress is very difficult. So right effort has four headings and I will talk about each one. The first one is to prevent unwholesome mental states from arising. The second is to Eliminate unwholesome mental states that have arisen and then to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen. And the fourth is to deepen and strengthen wholesome mental states that have arisen. Now there's two parts to this. Basically the first two are to do with negative unwholesome emotions or mental states. It's very difficult to distinguish between mental states and emotions. They all have emotional elements to them. The last two are about wholesome mental states and how to maintain them, how to bring them into existence, and how to deepen and sustain them. Now, what's so important about this is that instructions for right effort are not about watching these things or merely watching these things. We're not simply being detached observers of these events. There are duties and tactics associated with each of these four categories. This is a gardening project. I like to think of it that way. It's, it's quite often associated with this word bhavana in Pali, which means making to become or cultivating more or less gardening. The first two are about weeds, things you do not want in your garden. And the last two are about flowers and vegetables, things you do want in your garden. And this is a nice way to think about it. A gardening project is a most appealing to most people. And this is what we're doing with the mind, gardening. I should say also that it's called right effort or beautiful effort or perfect effort. The Pali is sama vayamo. And this means the correct efforts to be put in. It doesn't mean hard work. It doesn't mean any kind of extraordinarily demanding effort because extraordinarily demanding effort, strain, can be counterproductive. But it also doesn't mean just abiding in whatever arises. It simply is not that way. We're not allowing the garden to become a wilderness. The garden arrives unkempt, actually, not well ordered. And we have to find out how to garden and bring it into order and beauty. So the first two, I will talk about the prevention. It is 
to prevent the arising of the five hindrances. You can refer to other videos for a complete description of the five hindrances. Those are the negatives. The last two are about the seven factors of enlightenment. The bringing them into existence, the maintaining of them, and the deepening and sustaining of them. This is primarily two things that we will discuss in other videos. Seven factors of enlightenment. Five hindrances. These are precious little handfuls of teachings. And this is what right effort is directed to. Prevention is, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if we can prevent these things from arising, we'll be well off. How do we do that? I will go into greater detail later on, but primarily it's by sense restraint. We try to restrain the consciousness, a conscious awareness of things which both provoke desire in us and provoke aversion in us. And that means to, it's not about the eye or the ear, things come to the eye and the ear, it's about the consciousness which you invest in these objects. The sights, you take time to unwisely attend to the fault in certain things, and that produces ill will. You take time to unwisely attend to the beautiful in certain things, that produces craving and desire. These, that's a hint about how to manage prevention before you get entangled in these things. Stop that. It's, it's counter to ordinary discourse in our society about how to attend to things. Usually the critical mind and strong emotions regarding these things are quite often praised or expected. One is supposed to be passionate about these things. Bad advice. This is not the advice of the Buddha. If you want peace, if you want clarity, if you want enlightenment, you're going to have to go against the crowd. You're going to go the opposite direction. Once they have arisen, then it is about removal. And I will be talking about five methods of removing the five hindrances. So it's a beautiful menu of skillful techniques for undoing the presence of aversion and desire and the other aspects of the five hindrances. Now we move to the wholesome and these are the seven factors of awakening and I will go into detail about them but very briefly they are mindfulness, investigation of Dhamma, energy, joy, Tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are, in brief, the seven factors. And they are to be brought into existence. And if they are there, to be maintained, deepened, cultivated. One aspires to live in them. One aspires, actually, to never fall out of them. Now, you've heard all about all things are impermanent. All the contents of your mind are impermanent. Just watch it. Watch it go by. All anicca. No, that is not actually how the Buddha framed it. It's not that any particular aspect of consciousness, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, is devoid of instability. It is that we are going to dwell in these positive factors of awakening. They will change. They will change from one to another, but they will all be on the positive side. And we're not going to be indifferent to their diminishment or their absence. We're extremely interested in maintaining them all day long, all night long. And we're extremely interested in ridding ourselves of the hindrances all day long, all night long. So, this is just a summary, a beginning, an introduction to this, and I will be unpacking this whole extremely important element, which I believe has been 
misunderstood and misrepresented in many ways in uh, importing the Dhamma to the West. We're talking about prevention today, and this is the first tactic of right effort. Basically, it's stop trouble before it starts. This is always the best situation when you're dealing with negative aspects of the mind, the emotional structure. So you have to also raise energy to do this. And the Buddha is very clear that you can raise energy. There's all kinds of philosophical schools that are wonder whether anybody is actually free to change themselves or not. The Buddha is very much on the side that you can. You can make effort. And the Buddha says, I would not tell you to make effort if you couldn't. So there is an aspect of will involved, and there's an aspect of stirring up energy. So energy and effort are both involved in this soup. So he's making a demand on you. It's not just take a pill and you will change. This is something that you produce from within. And this kind of energy and effort has to be done early in the game. And that means that you've got to involve mindfulness. Because we're interested in stopping the rising of the five hindrances, if we can stop the rising, prevent the rising, then we will not have to deal with the tactics of removing, which will be in the next talk. So how do you do this? It's primarily through sense restraint. And uh, this has to be explained. This is not really a matter of sensory deprivation. You're not going to walk around with your eyes closed or put earplugs in. There's certainly nothing wrong with low sensory experiences or sensory deprivation. That can be quite relaxing. But more or less, you're going to have to function in this world with your eyes open, your ears open, your nose and tongue and sense of touch will be experiencing the sensory world. So what do we mean by sense restraint? It's possible to not look at things and not listen to things. But when things fall in this spectrum of the sight, we have to ask mindfulness not to generate interest in either the fault or the beautiful in these objects. Now, this is advice which just goes against the general conversation, the general attitude of the world. We're supposed to be interested in everything and how ugly and problematic and critical things are and how beautiful and wonderful and exhilarating things are. This is the tone of conversation in the world. This is not the tone of conversation if you ever want peace in your life. It's not the way the world goes. It's in the opposite direction. And this is quite a shock to hear most people are perplexed. How do you live? What's the point of the exercise if you're not going to be invested in uh, the, the ugly and the beautiful? What, what, how do you function? Actually, you will be experiencing a different type of beauty, the beauty of tranquility and peace in your emotional structure. It's not that we're trying to be dead or indifferent. We're trying to find a level of serenity which is untroubled by the world. So I'll give you one uh, simile uh, which the Buddha gives. There's a prisoner who has in the past been uh, very dangerous, problematic, and he's been in prison for quite some time. The guards say his sentence is coming up. Should we let him go or not? Or should we just execute him? The king says, let's find out whether he's reformed himself. Let's have him walk across a crowded fairground. And you know how in the crowded fairground, one of the reasons why they're there is to watch the most beautiful girl in the county dance on the stage. And that brings out the 
farmhands and the louts. And they tend to be drunk as well and not a pleasant company. Now we're going to have that prisoner walk across the fairground, the crowded fairground, with the beautiful girl dancing on stage and the louts in the audience making rude remarks. Now, if he can do that without spilling a drop of a bowl of oil filled to the brim, he is free. Now, he's going to have to carry that bowl of oil filled to the brim and not spill a drop. That's how his attention span is required. And if he, of course, if he gets distracted by the girl on the stage or the louts in the audience, he's going to spill a drop. And I want one of you to walk behind him with a sword. He spills a drop, cut off his head. If he makes it across, he's free. So this is the heightened condition. The Buddha says, now monks or any practitioner, that's the way to practice attention. The beautiful on one side, the ugly on the other side, you can't afford to be interested in. If you get lost in it, you lose your life. Of course, maybe for us, it's not the physical life that we lose. There is nobody with a sword behind us. But it's our possibility of the life of happiness and peace that we lose. If we don't understand how important it is to have enough attention span and mindfulness to stop with this endless tangle and magnetization. So basically, there's positive and negative in the magnetic field. And if you could be a type of metal which is not responsive to this, then you're unaffected by it. So you're depolarizing yourself from the beautiful and the ugly, which you're sticking to both in both directions. Sometimes it's the same thing. You're in love with somebody and you're in a huge argument. You hate them. It's a love-hate relationship. It happens split seconds apart. Love, hate, love, hate, love, hate. This is a great trial. And of course, this is the nature of sorrow and suffering. So if we have a chance to transcend this, it's going to be through polished mindfulness and attention and wisdom. And the wisdom is, do I understand why I shouldn't engage in these things to begin with? Have I told my mindfulness not to do it? If you don't inform your capacity to attend, it won't do these things. But if, you're, if you have sorted it out, thought through this, and seen the downside of this investing in negativity and the attraction, you then have wisely informed yourself. This is called wise attention, and it is the most powerful emotional support you can find for your search for happiness. So if you can manage to inform your mindfulness and then train your mindfulness to do this, you will experience a total transformation of life. You have found the secret. And uh, you might not even have to deal with these hindrances. But if you cannot stop trouble before it starts, I'm going to talk in another talk about how to stop it after it started. And that is the second part of this prevention or the removal of unwholesome mental states. The second aspect of right effort is removal. Once, if unfortunately, the five hindrances have arisen, the Buddha is very, very keen, very clear and repetitive about this. The job of the meditator is to remove these things quickly, immediately. And if it takes effort, you must arouse that effort. This is a little in contra to ordinary discussions of observing what's going on and getting to know your dark side or your hindrances. This is not the teachings of the Buddha. He is extremely interested in immediately 
freeing yourselves from these things. The next question is how to do this. And he has a number of skillful instructions about this. And this is one of the most useful lists of what to do about negative mental states available. It would be good if it was spread more widely, even for non-meditators. So the first thing is that we have this series of hindrances. And the first method for removal of these hindrances is to choose a topic which is the opposite of the problem. So if you're experiencing anger, one way to remove that is to replace it. If you're filling yourself with uh, goodwill, then anger has no opportunity or space to arise. And this is one simple method. So you can think for desire, the opposite of desire is the absence of desire. Now, there's two levels of that. One is repulsion, and the other one is neutrality. So for lay people, at least, one way to remove desire for a situation or an object or a person is to break it down into the four elements, that things are just made of substance to de-glamorize the object that you're fascinated by. And so things are just made out of earth and water and air and fire. A car is made out of just rubber tires and steel and glass. It's, that's all it is. So this is a way of deconstructing things and reducing their, their power. Agitation is uh, reduced by serenity practices. Sloth is opposite of that is to find some light or splash water in your face, get some exercise. Even contemplate the fact of death that increases your energy. Doubt is, again, addressed. The opposite of doubt is clarity, calm. And so, first of all, you would induce some serenity. You just go to the breath or some calming meditation and then address it by asking questions from people who are good sources of information. So these are one way, perhaps the first way, to remove these hindrances by their opposites. So the simile is a carpenter, when they assemble chairs, at least in the time of the Buddha, they, they assemble them with wooden pegs. They would put them together roughly with coarse wooden pegs, and then when they were ready to for the final model, they tapped the refined peg in and drove the old peg out and had the the finished peg in there. So that's, you're driving out the negative structures by filling yourself with their opposites. There's also one sort of universal cure, which is the reflection on impermanence, which tends to address all five of these. It reduces your, either your aversion or your attraction to things when you realize that it's all just fleeting and eventually to just disappear. So it can be a universal prescription for these things, and it may work for you depending on how well you've reflected on impermanence. If not, then you should explore these kind of opposite remedies. The hindrance perhaps still persists. The next remedy is called fear and shame in Palihiri Otapa. Now, shame is not a very hip thing these days. And fear, you're probably wondering, isn't Buddhism advising you to be fearless? No, it's advising you to fear what should be feared. And what you should fear is for your own safety. So if these things come up, if you've got constant anger, desire, agitation, sloth, doubt, these things are harmful to you. And you should consider that if you keep this up, this is going to end badly. 
not well. And you should have high regard for your own safety and well-being. So you need to stir up a good deal of concern for where this is going. This is, you know, people pick up all kinds of habits and it starts lightly and almost innocently and ends in a very dramatic and bad way because they didn't have enough concern for themselves. So this fear is actually a form of concern for yourself. The next aspect is shame, which is the Buddha gives a simile of a young, beautiful person looking into a mirror and they're ready to go out into society and they discover that there's a dead snake hanging around their neck. Uh, this is repulsive and it, it completely mars the beauty of that person. So also these characteristics mar the beauty of the mind. They mar your character. They put a stain on the possibilities of your personality. And so as a person would hastily remove that, so because of a certain amount of disgust for this, you're going to free yourself from these things. You're thinking, I'm not going to fly into a rage again. That just won't happen. That was not good for me. That was not good for anybody else. I'm not going to let greed carry me away over the boundaries of things. So these are ways of using fear and shame in a wholesome manner to keep you safe and well and to improve the beauty of your character. If that does not work, another way is distraction. They give an example where a monk is beginning to dwell on some sort of desire and then he, monks have usually shoulder bags and they have all the knickknacks that they use in their simple lives in there. So he takes out the shoulder bag and he, he sorts it all out. He puts out the needle and the thread and so forth and he neatens it all up. And by the time he's finished putting that all back in, the unwholesome desire has left him. So it's a useful technique to have a few things on hand to help distract you from these things until they can subside. You could get up and do a little bit of housework, sweeping and polishing and dusting and so forth. And you, you could have something on you that needs rearranging that you just pull out at those moments when you need distraction from your own thing. You need a little box of disorganized buttons, pennies and chewing gum and uh, you'll, you have to rearrange them in a nice order. The fourth method is the gradual method. This is obviously that the hindrance that your experience is sticky because the other three have not succeeded in bringing it to cessation. The simile here is a man is running and he thinks, why am I running? Why don't I walk? So he walks. Why am I walking? Why don't I sit down? He sits down. Why am I sitting? Why don't I lie down? He lies down. So you can see that the general idea here is to bring this down in stages. It's You can't go from running to lying down. There's too much energy in the hindrance. So it's got to be brought down in a gradual way. One method to initiate this, to get at least the first stage going, is to ask yourself, how did this start? Where, where did this start? What was the trigger, the first perception, either of sight or sound, that this came up? Now, it's a form of distraction again. You're, you now have another place, an analytical place to go. This brings you back into a reasonable mood. Once you get that, okay, it started here, the, the, the emotion may still be there, but it's been reduced in its intensity. Then you can proceed to use other methods. You might go for a walk, uh, read a book, talk to a friend, etc. This is bringing you down, and then finally you can come back to watching the breath. And uh, that will be a way of dissolving it. The last method is the most, probably against the most of common teachings of popular Buddhism, and even of popular psychology, and it's called suppression. And that's the, the analogy is that as a strong man would hold down a weaker man, 
And that is the idea of holding down, suppressing these emotions and not allowing them to express themselves in any other way through speech or action. And to actually just grit your teeth, count to 10, whatever you have to do. And the Buddha does talk about pressing the tongue to the roof of the mouth, clenching the teeth, and suppressing, holding it down. Now, it's quite surprising to some people to hear this, but it's the fifth remedy. It's the last remedy. But it's better than tolerating or allowing these things to express themselves. This is how concerned the Buddha is about the hindrances. They're not harmless. It's not just mere passing anger, mere passing greed, mere passing depression or sloth, the mere passing of agitation or of doubt. These things leave traces, traces in the consciousness, and they have a tendency to leave seeds behind. They will return, they will spread, they will become more powerful if you allow them. So it's not just a mere passing cloud in the sky. It's something to be taken very seriously and to be gotten rid of as soon as you can. And the results of getting rid of these things is they're weakened. It's very critical that they are the food of your basic misunderstanding about life. Whenever you experience these things, you nourish your own confusion. And it's that confusion that what we call avijja or ignorance that colors the rest of your decisions and actions in life and determine the whole trajectory of your life. And so if you can stop feeding that misinformation uh, factory, then uh, things will clear up by themselves. You will be, you will change. If you just deal with these hindrances and work very diligently in removing them if they arise, you will find yourself to be a different person. Not by even trying. The trying, the effort, has come in the removal of these things and the replacement of these things. And you will just be handed different perspectives on life. You will feel like a different person because you can change. And you can change for the better. So this is a very brief overview of the removal of these hindrances if they have arisen. Of course, it's better to prevent their arising to begin with. The third factor of right effort is the development of wholesome mental states. This is the beautiful. And these are the instructions for the proper direction of effort and energy. One has to stir up energy, cultivate it, bring it into effect. It doesn't just happen. And again, I want to emphasize that the practice of Buddhism is not mere observation. It's very easy to get this misunderstood. The practice of Buddhism is cultivation and a very deliberate awareness and a lot of choices being made. So we're bringing up the wholesome mental states and primarily you can summarize them as this list called the seven factors of awakening. The seven factors are the process towards enlightenment and they also are the states of mind of the enlightened person. You could consider it as rafters holding up a roof. The rafters hold up a roof, but at the same time, they are the roof. They serve two functions. One is to support and also to embody. So when we develop these seven factors, they will be part of the path and the process towards our awakening, and an awakening is just another word for well-being and happiness. And they will also form the contents of the mind unbroken throughout one's life. If one attains enlightenment, they do not recede. So these are the seven factors, and uh, these begin with mindfulness. We cannot do anything without mindfulness. Our attention span is everything. The mindfulness 
is a sentry and the gatekeeper. That means that the sentry does not let everybody into the walled city. They have very specific instructions. They are to exclude anything that distorts reality. They are to exclude all of the five hindrances, which we discussed in the previous talks on right effort. And they welcome in two factors. One is samatha or serenity. We could also call it concentration. And vipassana, clarity of sight, clarity of insight. These are the two that mindfulness welcomes in and they form an accurate report of reality. So mindfulness is the first factor to be developed. As we do this, we use mindfulness then to investigate. So the second factor is the investigation of Dhamma. Dhamma in this case means not just the teachings of the Buddha, but it means reality. Another synonym for Dhamma is things, everything. It investigates. Mindfulness helps investigate reality as it is. Now, we have very distorted ideas of reality, and that's why we're shocked, confused by it. If we understood reality as it is, we would not be shocked and uh, dismayed in uh, existence. The third factor is when you have mindfulness and investigation, energy is brought up. Now, sometimes you have to raise the energy, but sometimes the natural production of mindfulness and investigation is the increase of energy because things are interesting. You're paying attention, you're interested, and that produces energy. When you have energy, mindfulness, and investigation going on, the next thing that will arise quite naturally is joy. When we're involved like this, it's enjoyable. We will feel the joy throughout our entire body and mind. And this is one of the factors of a right attitude towards existence itself. Existence is extraordinarily interesting. And however, it's not interesting in itself. You are the one that's interested. Reality does not provide interest. You provide it. Reality is nothing in itself. It's not conscious. You are conscious and you are interested. And when you are, everything's interesting. And you feel saturated with joy. The joy of curiosity, of inquiry, of attention, of clarity. These things all mount up. Now, once this energy and joy have been processing for a while, something happens. A certain tranquility comes over you. You've been now involved in it, and a serenity comes over you. This is the movement towards deeper concentration. This serenity is very beautiful. It doesn't mean that you're losing energy. Energy is there. It's less rapturous but, and it has a flavor of serenity to it, tranquility to it. So that tranquility brings you to the edge of something, the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path, and that is samadhi. Samadhi is deep absorption, stillness, and extraordinary suffusion of well-being and happiness both in the mind, the mental aspect, and in the physical aspect. It cannot be approached by the normal person. It's not a normal condition of mind. You're going to have to become above normal in your attention, your investigation, in your energy, in your joy, in your tranquility. has got to raise itself to the point where it enters into true and profound stillness. Now this stillness is exquisite and super normal. But that is a factor of the enlightened mind. And it contributes to your progress towards that so that you have command of this and you don't regress. The final factor, if all of these things are successfully 
cultivated and are interacting together is a factor called upeka, which we would translate as equanimity or beautiful and perfect balance. It's the kind of on-looking witness to things, a detached witness, but not an uncaring witness, one who's not disturbed by anything, has a perfect sense of composure and balance. And this is the infusion of two aspects. One is just concentration, concentration in itself when one is deeply absorbed in things, one becomes exquisitely balanced and still. And this is a very beautiful and refined type of pleasure. It is also the nature of just wisdom. One can be active and investigative in the world, seeing things as they are and in motion, and at the same time, exquisitely balanced. And this is wisdom-based equanimity. And the other one is concentration-based equanimity. So you'll see that the person who has these qualities can function perfectly in activity and also, also prefers to spend time in solitude. So this is one of the aspects of the cultivation of the and development of these wholesome mental states. Solitude is required. You cannot be continuously interacting socially with other people and get some work done. You need to withdraw and look at the activities of the mind and direct them and redirect them again and again. So solitude, seclusion, and education. You need to understand what this Dhamma is about in order to know what to practice and how to practice. So this is extremely important that you understand this is requires withdrawal from the sensory world to cultivate these things, as any deep study does. We've all been to school for years and years. You know that you have to sit alone in a study room and concentrate sometimes. And you need to know how to do this and when to do this. So this is a form of study, but it's more observational, not just intellectual ideas. So this is the third factor of right effort. And it's very, very beautiful. We would call it cultivation. It's the part of the gardening where you plant your flowers and your fruit. And if you keep doing this and nurturing it, you will receive the abundance of this. The fourth part of right effort is the maintenance, the deepening, the bringing to perfection of the seven factors of awakening. Now, this is the most beautiful part of this gardening process. Remember that the simile, the analogy that I like to use for the four right efforts is gardening. The first two are unwholesome. Uh, there are the weeds and things that you want to get rid of in the garden. And there's a good deal of sweat to that. It's prevention and removal. Prevention is mulching of something, or, and removal is weeding. And then we have planted the wholesome factors, the fruits and vegetables, in the third part of right effort. That is, we have initiated the seven factors of awakening. Now is actually the beautiful part of gardening. It's mostly a matter of watering and tending, aerating, just adjusting the conditions for optimal growth of these seven factors of awakening. And they are now in their tender phase and they need to be brought to full maturity and abundance so that they bring the ultimate fruit. And the ultimate fruit of this is enlightenment. Once we get to enlightenment, then the seven factors are irreversible. They don't decline. There are stages of enlightenment and they need further development, but at some point here, they are no longer in danger of withering away. Now, the seven factors 
are mindfulness, investigation of phenomenon or phenomena, which means the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the impermanence of things, the unsatisfactory nature of existence, the selfless, insubstantial nature of existence. So these are what is being investigated with the development of mindfulness. Uh, Of course, mindfulness has to be trained. It's been brought into existence, but it's the, if you remember, it's the sentry. And that sentry gets better and better and better at its job. That is to prevent the entrance of the five hindrances and to allow the entrance of truth. And truth comes in the form of samatha and vipassana, that is serenity and insight. That is welcomed in, the five hindrances are removed. Now this uh, third factor is energy. And this also tells you the characteristic of Buddhism. Energy is probably the most frequently mentioned factor. That is that you can make effort. It's not coming from externals and it's not going to arrive by accident. You actually have to stir up the effort and make the effort yourself. And there's lots of misdirection in a contemporary society about the nature of this. There's questions whether you can do anything about your condition. And the Buddha is very adamant. You can and you should And it's a beautiful practice, raising energy. This results again in joy. And joy is a very active, strong, and of course, welcome emotion. If you ever have questioned whether Buddhism is kind of just a a very serious and humorless experience, then no, it's not. Joy is profoundly cultivated and should be uh, developed to its maximum, it will tend to naturally swing into serenity. Now, I like to use the analogy of gardening through the day. In the morning, organizing things, feeling the heat of the sun, working away. It's good exercise. There's a beauty, a joy. There's energy in this. But in the afternoon, when you're finished... You go up on the porch and wash your face, sit down, pour yourself a glass of lemonade. And as you sit on the porch looking at your garden, that energy that was put into it and the joy of the work in the morning is now subsiding into something called tranquility and serenity. Uh, Very natural that energy and joy are followed by tranquility and serenity. We don't want to do them in the reverse order, usually because serenity and tranquility can turn into sleepiness, drowsiness, or lack of energy. So usually serenity follows energetic joy. And if this tranquility is maintained as you sit there, eventually something happens most mysterious that one enters into a very profound state of stillness. And this stillness is full of pleasure. And it's the stillness, the relief from the incessant activities of the mind. Even wholesome types of thoughts become wearisome after a while. The lack of thinking processes. And yet there's energy and sweetness in this experience. On the far side of this samadhi experience, the sixth factor, the samadhi experience which should be done again and again and again, cultivated, developed, brought to perfection. One should try to enter it quickly. One should try to stay in it a long time. And one should know how to change the mind as well after emerging from samadhi. This, of course, is a very supernormal condition. This is the abundant and beautiful part of the gardening These are very large fruits of the practice. There's a prize-winning sort of uh, abundance. Now, the last factor is equanimity. This is the 
satisfaction that one has in the development of these seven factors of awakening and the balancing of them and the ability to return to them anytime. So you realize that tomorrow you can just step out into your garden again and pick whatever you like. The cucumbers, the tomatoes, the flowers for the table are all there. And that's a very beautiful experience. Equanimity is the result of having done the work. There's a solid and balanced center to the personality that can only come when these faculties, these capacities, these seven factors have been developed and deepened and become accessible at will. And now this is not a hobby that you do one hour in the afternoon. These factors are carried around through the entire day and right into the night. And they will change consciousness even in sleep. In fact, they will transform the contents even of dreams. They will affect the experience of the body, both your your own direct experience, but also the health of the body, how the body functions, the heart rate, the respiration rate are all changed by these factors of awakening. And so great transformations and a transformation of personality as well. You're no longer the same person. This is the enlightened person is not the unenlightened person. And so there is no core to personality. There is no intrinsic identity to any person. So the factors of the five hindrances are left behind and the seven factors have taken their place. And one is walking around with a new mind and a new being and thinking in new ways and experiencing in new ways. And these ways are the height of the human possibilities. So I encourage all of you to aspire to this and to be inspired by this. I wish you uh, success in the development of the seven factors of enlightenment and their maintenance and deepening.